This is an appeal from Bad Boy Running. In a world shattered by COVID and lockdown, hundreds of do-badders are taken to the streets and trails with the aim of staying fit. They are breaking more PBs, reducing their times, and building endurance and athleticism. Alcohol tolerance is dropping to critical levels, and our chubby funster status is under severe threat. This has to stop. It's time to get lazy and mediocre again. That's why Bad Boy Running has partnered with takeaway delivery service Food Hub so we can get vital takeaways to do badders in their time of need. By downloading the Food Hub app, you get exclusive offers and discounts from your favourite local independent restaurants and takeaways so you can stuff your little face with thousands of calories all without leaving your sofa. Food Hub aren't like other food apps who charge commission to the restaurants. This means ordering through Food Hub is on average 15% cheaper for the same meal and 30% less racist. Food Hub also won't charge you that surface charge the others do. Cheeky bastards! So download Food Hub today and use FYB15. 15% off your first Food Hub order. Together, let's get Britain back to the top of the obesity tables. They're bad, they're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. But the bye 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 bye. But the bye 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Bye 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 bye. Hello, Jody Rainsford. Hello, David Heller. I think this is Christmas. Or is that next week? Are we now Christmas? It's Christmas soon. Uh, happy Christmas! Happy Maybe. Christmas, everyone! Maybe. We haven't, you'll be happy to know we haven't done anything special for Christmas this year. We haven't done an extra episode because they are always the worst thing we ever do. Um, <laughs> so that is our gift for you, not trying to do something and that ultimately is better than when we try so, I know, uh, last time last time we did something we did the uh, best of 2019 and we were hilarious hilariously it was empty um which I forgot about most, that most <laughs> there was 15 minutes of emptiness as well so that people didn't quite guess i mean they, they downloaded <laughs> it so there was two minutes so we we thought about that it is funny advice. come on that is funny that, that is funny the difficulty is that in 2020 how do you top that yeah yeah maybe we do the best in the last five years and, and the best of is that <laughs> best of <laughs> but so, yeah. today we've got an episode coming up for you with um with an amazing athlete and it's very topical because we are actually speaking today to one of the british athletes who's been directly affected by dopers and um had been given medals because people have been stripped and you'll be ha- you'll be very pleased to know that we don't really talk about that in any way throughout the interview. 
So, um, yeah, we've, we've kind of failed given the topicality of doping again. Um, but we're speaking to, speaking to the incredible Marilyn Akuru all about funding. And it's really, really, really interesting because it, it, we go right from the start of what it's like to be a 12 year old gifted runner, how you go through that system, when the cash comes in, from who, or how it's attached, how it works. And, um, it, it's kind of what you expect in that it seems that everything to do with our sport is tied to some dickhead old white dude <laughs> who's a bit of a sea bomb um but it was it was interesting and we also talk about you know what how we can change things and 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 what the future can be so that is coming up that is coming up should we get should we get deep and dirty in doping then jd just as <laughs> now we're talking about, about it but before we talk about doping i think we need to talk about food hub Food hub. I mean, so yeah. So, are you are you correlating the two? <laughs> it's a kind. It's like if Doobadis did doping, food would be their doping. Like we are guilty as charged. We are overdosing if, daily. If we didn't. If we wouldn't have wa- uh, Wada, we'd have Waddler. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'm trying to think what the L is. Limited. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't think. It's it's funny. So if you've been listening to the podcast the last few weeks, um, you'll have noticed uh, an ad, an ad that we that we've been recording, different ads for for Food Hub and uh, Food Delivery Network, who they just I, I would I I'd say they're they're actually they're a great sponsor in, in terms of like they're a perfect fit. But not just that. If you go to any like Food Hub um, uh, website or anything else like that, you'll notice the branding is eerily similar to bad boy running i mean like when we first saw it we're like mm, one of us one of us is infringing some kind of intellectual property here i don't I, i'm sure it's us rather than them but it, it does feel cannily similar see this is why we're promoting them because our plan is to to grow them as a brand so then they've got enough cash so we can sue them and <laughs> that's exactly what we do <laughs> That's how we work with you as a brand. What we do is we build you up to such a level. We like the tabloids. We build you up so we can take you down. We don't need to do a discovery process, a financial discovery process, because we know how much money that we've helped you we've helped you uh, generate. But yeah, so so uh, so it's our Christmas gift, isn't it? It's our Christmas gift, but not. But more than that, we have been given a, a, a stack of vouchers from Food Hub, and so what we're going to do, um, we're going to run a a competition on social media uh, in conjunction with Food Hub. Um, and what we want you to do is there's there's, there's two prizes, and, and uh, in, in our minds, this seems absolutely brilliant. Let's see how it works in practice. <laughs> okay, so there's two things. So first thing, right, you're going to download the Food Hub app and you've got to see where your local Food Hubs are. Now, the first prize is for um, those people, those listeners who like running. We know there's not many of you, but if you like running, what you need to do is to run to a Food Hub um, uh, restaurant or, or food delivery service in your area and take a photo outside it and then post it on social media. What we'll do in the group and on social media, we'll have the different tags and everything you need to do in order to do that. And you can win um, uh, pretty much your body weight in, in takeaways, um, plus a BBR uh, merch pack as well, which include a, a vest or a T-shirt, um, uh, a hoodie, um, buffs, all that kind of stuff. Not buffs um, and everything else. 
that's the first price. The second prize, though, is the one I think most people are going to go for. <laughs> so what this is the at home prize. So what you need to do is you need to snap yourself in full running kit eating a takeaway. I, it, not, no, no, these half-assed excuses of like, oh, just sat in your sofa. You've got to be full running kit, everything on, eating a takeaway. If you can involve family members in it as well, eating takeaway, that's perfect. We want flair as well. I mean, if if you happen to be fully marathon to sabs, uh, dressed up with all the shades, the gate, the waders, all you know, bonus marks for that. If LSE was here, he'd win this competition. <laughs> if LSE was still, was, you know, was still, was still in the UK, he'd absolutely win this goal because he'd know the kind of level we were going to go to. Um, but this one, this, this at-home price, of course, is available to anyone. So it, doesn't, it could be any takeaway anywhere you are in the world. So this one, the, the at-home prize is available. And just to let you know, the at-home prize is exactly the same as the active prize. So <laughs> there's no, there's no, we're not, we're not, uh, uh, you're not going to suffer if you're going to be incredibly lazy, but we do need you to to, to dress up. So we're going to be running that competition for the next couple of weeks over Christmas and into the new year. We've got and 10 of those, which is, I mean, it's easy to win, but also for our international friends who can't use Food Hub, um, we're going to send you merch. Yeah. For the best. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we want a, yeah, creative, persistent. And you can, the thing is, you can enter as many times as you want. So this could this could be something you do every single day. You can involve family, involve schools. Oh wait a minute, there's no schools back at the moment. But you know anything anything you could do entire entire running clubs. But you know that's the that that's the thing. Well, all the details are going to be on the Facebook group and on the um, uh, Twitter page and all our social media. Um, but yeah, have a go at it, and you could be winning some uh, some lovely takeaways and some not so lovely BBR merch. Indeed, indeed. Now um, back to back to doping. <laughs> What a, what a great seg that was. <laughs> I mean, we've got to talk about it, right? The Court of Arbitration, oh what a bunch of absolute C-bombs. And um, Who says there is corruption at the highest levels of, uh, of athletics and uh, sport? It's just so sad, isn't it, that actually the whole system is, is terrible. And so for those at home who aren't aware what's happened... The Court of Arbitration, who are a independent court in Switzerland for arbitrating sport, um, although actually the deputy head of the Olympic Committee also happens to be on that, and there are various other ties. There's no, there's no. Athletes. <laughs> that's that's true independence, isn't it? Yeah, there's no athletes on the committee. It's all uh, committee types. They have. Um, Russia appealed to them and they've said, and I, I think the, the, the way they've justified it is they've said to encourage like good practice and change in the future, we have decided that we're going to downgrade from four years to two years. Um, but most importantly, if you're a Russian athlete, you can still compete in red where it's saying, is it clean, clean athlete Russia? So essentially just a rebranding of the Russian kit and you can still compete in the Olympics. So it's not affected you in any way. They have said, obviously, if you're banned, you can't compete. But given that they've shown there's systematic doping, which means the system, it should be, I, I think, that assumption is that you're 
assumed to be doping. <laughs> so they've essentially said, yeah, you can't do team sports, but um, and Putin supposedly can't attend any of the, these events unless he's invited. That's their get out clause. <laughs> and what I love is doesn't this doesn't the ban end like literally about three days before the 2022 World Cup? So it means that they can compete in the in the World Cup, which was going to be one of the big the, the big things that they were going to they're going to be chucked. It's so incredibly corrupt. Yeah, we 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 had Rob Kohler, who used to be the deputy director of WADA, who left to set up a I guess a lobbying group for athletes, and he's coming out saying that this needs to be they need to completely change and have independence. They need to to start again with this of arbitration and the, I, I guess the frustrating thing is everyone's blaming wada but ultimately wada have to defer to the court of arbitration because court of arbitration was set up by the olympic committee in the 80s um as this independent body um wada was set up by the implant the, the iac as well so actually they're both governed by the same laws and while you can a- appeal the court of arbitration to the swiss courts you can only really appeal based on technicalities you can't appeal based on the actual rulings so we're stuck in this position where wada have come out strongly and then the corruption of the olympic movement have watered it down to nothing so wow i mean if if i was if marilyn's not going to the next olympics but if she was, this would be devastating. No, absolutely. I just, what they've created a system of like no accountability. Like Wada yeah. can say, we've done our job, and then they can defer to the court of arbitration who then go, well, this is the technicality, um, you know, and we can only do you know, present with what we've got. So everyone can just hold up their hands and say, we've done our jobs. You know, the results, nothing to do with yeah. us, but that's it, yeah. we've done our jobs. Yeah, and yeah, it does... I am a believer sometimes that things need to get so bad for them to get better. And actually they need to completely change the system. And this maybe in the long run could trigger that, which would be better than soldiering on with this corrupt limp um, relationship between the three parties. Um, Yeah. So um, maybe, maybe, we, as Bad Boy Running, should come up with our own version of their tops. <laughs> um, we say exactly the same words, but we instead it's, it's just cheating athlete Russia. <laughs> and just sell those. I, All proceeds we, go to funding uh, athletes. It feels as though it feels as though we're doing a Blue Peter designer T-shirt style competition here. And we, well, want, and we like Tony Hart. Like, what we want to do, please send in your designs. Let's do that. So, do balance. This is, this is another competition you can win. You're Anyone... win so many things for this, this episode. <laughs> Wada and Cass take away, we give to you. So, send us in um, your designs, and they can just be the words. It doesn't have to be a, a, a great graphic drawing, but. What merch should we do that clearly shows our disdain for Russia and for the doping system and for WADA and for the, the court of arbitration? And we will choose the winner 
and we will make those and obviously the winner will get that top um, for free and also will then uh, you know the real bonus is we'll then have to go into hiding um, for the rest of their life <laughs> but well, you know it'll be worth it because it's going to be a sweet top a sweet top um, yeah so bad times there um, have you seen the good news though go on I know you've been saying recently that too many children have been um, like surviving uh, poverty. <laughs> yes, I do. I <laughs> oh yeah, it's one of the one of the things I, I complain about. There are too many children surviving poverty. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> go on, go on, Marcus Rashford. What? what? <laughs> so Eddie is out his back. Eddie is out his back. <laughs> it's just oh He's yeah. He's running. 31 marathons in 31 days which um is on a treadmill though isn't it all on a treadmill and this is this is what is going to be interesting because if uh, if you don't know why we're making these jokes it's because we've many many episodes ago we 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 had a view we decided on a view that because eddie izzard who had run 50 marathons in 53 days or something like that um he'd almost which was an amazing feat but running them in the 10 hour days, 12 hour days, he essentially had watered down the um, the currency of running a marathon for when others try and fundraise, because it, it no longer seems like a, even running a seven and seven no longer seems that hard. Yeah. And so the worry. Eddie's done it. Eddie Isard's done it. And he's, you know, he doesn't. He was eating like ice creams. He was stopping yeah. off in town. Yeah. And Eddie so, could do it. Why couldn't you, why can you only do seven marathons in seven days? Yeah, so our our view was that actually, but even though he was a lovely, lovely guy, very funny man, or used to be a very funny man, um, who <laughs> <laughs> that's rich coming from us. Oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> Sorry, coming, the comedy genius that that is uh, bad boy running commenting on on someone who's decades of experience. <laughs> Our view that he, he was, in essence, his actions, although well intended, might actually reduce the total amount of money being raised to save children. Um, so, hence, child killer. Yeah, Eddie is not child killer. So, um, this is going to be really interesting because he is now going to find out the same effect he's had on others because 31 in 31 days for him is less than what he's done before. So he's he suffered that with all of his all of the same things it, it, he's done afterwards have never been able to match. He he shot his load like too too early. Yeah, he went too big too soon. Yeah, and and so while obviously he is a great man and this hopefully will raise loads of money for charity, it's going to be really interesting to see whether it does or not because I think he could still struggle. He's still got the profile. People are still going to give. But whether it manages to capture the imagination in the same way and, and the media, that that would be really interesting because actually this is going to prove how many children he's killed. <laughs> so um, we've we've uh, it's a short intro because Jodie, we've got hearts off at ten. A man is probably horrified by, uh, by the fact she agreed to be on Bad Boy Running now, given. <laughs> Exactly. What are we talking? Doping, takeaways, tell killing. <laughs> <laughs> and it all comes down to funding, you know, funding for... It all uh, does come, it's all of fun. It's all about money in the end. <laughs> so, um, well, from, um, from funding for charities to 
funding for athletes. There's our segue. And Marilyn, we apologize for everything that's gone before you, but you truly were amazing. So thank you very much. Take it away, Nick. Don't do badders. Um, we've not really spoken that much about funding in the past for, for British athletes, but just for athletes in general. And recently I was reading a, a really interesting article about Marilyn and about her, her struggle with funding, but also the, the delay in the Olympics and how that actually affected her. And so not, I mean, what I love about Marilyn is, is not only is her amazing performances, but the fact that she took she's decided to retire before the next olympics but that wasn't the end of the story because she wanted to actually highlight the the cause of other athletes who are struggling and use the opportunity of her retirement to actually try and help others in their funding so i thought this is something we need to tell people so we can help as well and get involved so Welcome on the on the podcast, Marilyn Akuru. <laughs> oh, thank you. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> Thanks that, for having me on. Was that a fair representation? Would you say have I you know have I got things right there or? Yeah, pretty much for the most part. I will just sort of. I haven't quite used the R word yet. <laughs> oh, I'm an acting in transition, which will probably culminate in retirement. Um, so, I mean, 2020 was supposed to be my retirement year, um, ideally at my third Olympics. But obviously, we know the climate we're in, and COVID has happened, and so it's almost like what a plan. Um, but that has thrown me into a huge flux. Um, I am still training, but you know, for me, I guess this is just yet another lockdown as it were that I've experienced another setback another obstacle and out of that has born like this new initiative and you know it is really a struggle that a lot of athletes regardless of your sport know Um, and I, I literally just got fed up of hearing the same thing and I think it's important to raise awareness for the fans who love the sport so much that this is what's happening and you know the more we share our stories hopefully something will change and I'm all about you know you know leaving my sport better than I came into it so that's kind of the little mission I'm on at the minute well it because the probably the the first time I really heard about struggles of, of athletes I was amazed by was was when Greg Rutherford was saying how he'd he'd just won gold and he'd he was always being written off by the British selectors as yesterday's story even though he was going into the next competitions as the favorite as the world leader and yet he he was struggling financially which which to me was madness i mean has has the system changed since then is like for the better or has it actually got worse i can't say that the system has changed no um i think it's very different especially in this age of social media so it is really different and you know i've teamed up with some amazing ladies and we've launched brand new sport and that's what it's about understanding that you are a brand in yourself and you know what a time, you know, you can actually, you know, do really well just off social media, but it's a lot of hard work and you are wanting to spend that energy training. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned, someone of the caliber of Greg Rutherford, there's a lot of Olympic medalists that are struggling financially. And I think what people don't realize is a lot of people that don the British vest or their national vests, um, they're not sponsored and they have worked day in, day out. They've been chasing this dream and it's a culmination of, you know, pure grit and determination and working around the clock 
you know, working around full time jobs uh, and they've made it, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee. You know, what I've realized is elite, elite sport isn't the meritocracy I thought when I was 10 years old, when I grew up, um, just thinking, yeah, I'll get on the TV and then I'm going to be rich because I'm going to get a gold medal. Um, it doesn't translate quite quite like that. And I've realized there's a lot of politics that goes into it. And also just, you know, no one really teaches you how to be an elite athlete. No one's quite sure what that means. Um, and it is really about the support system that you have around you that kind of will determine your altitude. Well, I mean, you mentioned there, you know, as a as a ten year old child, and uh, as I said, you know, before we started recording, I, I thought it'd be really interesting actually to get a sense of of your your journey through funding and also just expectations, because you know we've we've all watched the TV as children and thought, wow, imagine being that person. They have the dream life. Absolutely. At, at what point for you did it change from being a a dream to uh, potentially being reality? So I cannot go any further without mentioning my mother. And so I'm Nigerian background and, you know, for her, sport is not a career. And I think a lot of people resonate with this when you come from sort of the Afro-Caribbean background. Mm. You know, they want you to be lawyers or doctors or pharmacists. And so education is super important. And I went to a fantastic um, boarding school aged 10 years old, which was my opportunity. You know, I grew up in northwest London, Stonebridge Park. And, you know, life was tough for the first 10 years of my life in terms of, you know, there was a lot of obstacles. I heard no a lot. And so when my dad decided to send me away to boarding school, that was, you know, a huge thing. And almost when I came back after telling my mum I'd won sports day, it was almost like, don't embarrass me like this. <laughs> you know, who cares about running? I don't send you to school to run. What is running? So for me, it was very hard to see it as a career. I also didn't really see any role models, you know, that I aspired to be like. So however, it was the thing that gave me confidence. It was the thing that, you know, I was making amazing friends. And my first coach, George Harrison, I'm Shafi Barnett Harry, I think up there. Um, he was someone that mentioned the Olympic word for the first time. And I just thought, wow, he sees that in me. Not only that, he was someone who stood in the gap for me and made sure that I stayed in the sport. You know, there's a lot of talent that, you know, you can find at any local athletics track and schools, you know, any day of the week. But keeping them in the sport is the difficulty. And he was someone who literally would drive in a term time um, to pick me up, take me to Watford, take me back home until I was of age and I could jump on the train and go myself. But it's those little things that make the big difference. And so I carried on. I defied my mum, which, you know, I don't normally do. It's probably the only thing I've done that she's not been happy about. And, and what, um, age was, what age was your coach doing that? Just to give, give us a frame of reference. So from the age of 10 until... Uh, say 15 when I could you know go on public transport for myself so in the term time obviously I was on campus I was doing all the sports at school just thriving um you know I remember actually her being called in for a school meeting and the school having to explain to her how you know these extra curricular activities that I did was actually going to be helpful and help me be a rounded individual and that my grades wouldn't slip and you know that was the level <laughs> that it took for my mum to sort of subside um, but what was happening is in the holidays when I went home sort of three weeks I was getting really unfit and coming back and George was sort of thinking oh she's just not dedicated she's not committed however um, I actually 
sort of had my first injury and he booked me to go to physio and I remember just bricking it thinking my mum barely lets me go training she's not going to let me go to physio and he came to pick me up I didn't even have the heart to tell him and she just sort of exploded at him where are you taking my child I was probably about 12 at this time where am I not just going to let her go off anywhere with you and he really sat her down explained stuff and then he turned to me and he said I realize what you've been going through um, mortified at the time but it's something we laugh about now but this is the kind of things that you know different cultures face for me it was yeah. you know it was weird all my friends parents were taking them to training taking me to training um but my mom just really didn't understand it like as an adult I get it now but at the time that was you know a huge obstacle um for me um so then I think in my head I love proving people wrong and she was the first person that I was like I'm going to show her I can be excellent at this and I can be excellent at my grades and so it kind of went from there, just that the power of no and proving people wrong. Um, and it's kind of been a theme throughout my career, I'm sure we'll get on to. But um, I continued. I went to do my A-levels at another boarding school. And this was a point where I had to be really sort of autonomous. And um, George wouldn't travel because he's, he's quite old now, bless him. But he would literally send my program written <laughs> out because <laughs> we didn't have email then still. Um, and I just sort of grab some of my guy mates and they would pace me around the cricket pitches. And then I chose Bath Uni because it's got excellent facilities for sport. So and you're, again, you're training at school to your coach, not at school's plan. Yeah. Yeah. This what is how did, <laughs> once what, he'd sown that seed, let's see how far we can get. Because I wasn't like one of those standout juniors. You know, I was mm. doing really well. I was probably coming, you know, third and fourth, but Hertfordshire was a really strong county. Um, so I'm really competitive and I started to get the buzz. I didn't fully think it was going to be my career, but it was something that I was really enjoying and it was a huge escape for me from a lot of things that I was going through as a teenager. Was that an so, issue yeah. with, your, with your coach at school? Because I imagine where, well, I, I went to boarding school myself and, you know, the sports coach is, is quite a powerful person when it comes to your day to day. Yeah, I think, do you know what, I've always had the most um, supportive PE teachers um, and sports coaches. I think I've seen that kind of culture in coaching uh, as I've gone on into the elite world of sport. But actually at school, they just thought, wow, the dedication, because I was doing it around my school curriculum. So it wasn't mm. taking away from anything. And, you know, they kind of thought, you know, let's just support her as much as possible, um, especially for my boarding, the second boarding school. You know, girls weren't really that keen on sports. So it was actually something that they really um, supported and championed me on and were sort mm. of dragging the boys along. They're like, oh, man, you've got us out here at six o'clock. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was really well supported. That was Stowe School and my first school was Abbott's Hill. And so then when I got to Bath Uni, I guess that's when I had a bit of a culture clash in terms of coaching. And um, But, again, I stood my ground and I was, you know, really adamant that, you know, I was wanting to be with George until I got to my first Olympics. So the um, there were a few coaches that kind of wanted to coach me, but sort of just ignored that and, and got on with it. You know, there were training groups that will be more accommodating than others. And, you know, if I couldn't find people to train with on a particular day, I just had to suck it up and get it done. And, yeah. and do you, when you, you said that you went to Bath Uni because of the because of the facilities it, in your mind like, or, or looking back at any point. Was there a point at which you there was a kind of a fork in the road where you then decided I'm going to this the Olympics is is it this is, I'm going to take this seriously because choosing Absolutely. a university on that basis of you know yeah. um, it seems to be quite seems to be quite a big deal 
Yeah, I love that you brought that up, actually, because I actually chose Bath because it was academic enough for my mum, but also sporty enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually why I chose it. And I think that year it was number four on the university's list. Because obviously, like, literally, she was like, why not Oxford or Cambridge? Um, And so there was another union, then it was Bath. And she was like, "Okay, you can go there. (laughs) Um, So that was literally I did French and politics because I really didn't want to do medicine or law. So I thought, you know, something fudgy enough until I can figure out what I want to do. Um, And yes, and it was just a beautiful university. I don't think it was originally on my on my selections, but I went to a sporting event there. And I thought, why isn't this on my list? So, yeah, I was really glad to get the grades for that. And that was my defining moment or one of them in terms of, hey, I'm going to follow this and give it, you know, 200%. I think at the my final year ended up having to be split in two because that year a certain Kelly Holmes retired and I had done really well at the university games, um, not really expected to, you know, come out of, with anything. And I ended up coming out with a bronze medal and running 201, um, which was a shock to a lot of people. Um, and I actually got put into the Commonwealth team. Um, and I think that was the first time I thought, wow, I actually, this is what George was talking about at 10 years old. I actually could get to the Olympics. The Olympics are two years away. I've run 201, massive PB from 203. Um, and very little had changed, really, if I, if I thought about it. I think I just was away in a warm climate of Australia, doing a bit more turnover, no uni work to bother me. Um, and so, yeah, 2006 was definitely when... Well, something else special happened. I made the final and I ran two minutes for the first time. And that is kind of the holy grail and had no clue what I was doing. And I thought, you know what? If I apply myself, definitely get to the Olympics. <laughs> and then you, so the first time you went to, so you're going to the Commonwealth Games, was your mum impressed at this point? Or was, was, was that still not good? At, was that still not, not, not on the radar? Well, it wasn't the Olympics, but it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to Australia. She's like, what? So, yeah, that's, I mean, as long as you're on TV, to be fair, she's pretty happy. You know, she doesn't you need to expect much. No, by then she thought, okay, you know, this is a big deal. Um, and also, I think I started to impress her with my dedication. My grades were great as well, so she mm. couldn't complain. Just leave no room for complaining. But no, by that point, she realized it was what I was passionate about and what I wanted to do. So, And, and how does... Because we've we've never really talked about what selection looks like and mm. like, who contacts you when and what do they say and whether there are conditions and whether there yeah. are promises. Or, it sounds like, like MI5 yeah. or something, doesn't it? Like, the way, the, the, what we know of it, someone taps you on the shoulder one day. And, I know. Yeah, what's, how does that actually come about? So it is interesting. I think, you know, the initial sort of onboarding of talent from sort of junior to senior it's a bit murky I would say like for me I was sort of scouted as a as a junior I was doing pretty well I ran the 400 and I won the nationals and that's where a lot of eyes are on you know the up-and-coming talent Mm. and my sort of first pro coach if you want to call it that because athletics isn't professional um he sort of scouted me off that list I was the number one 400 runner uh, saw I was a London girl so he actually visited me at Bath um, and he was just sort of offering all this amazing stuff dazzling sparkling lights basically became my agent first um, and for someone like me who'd lacked that kind of support team it was just like wow you know I had no clue I just thought this guy's gonna get me to the Olympics 
And, and um, what, does, what, what did he say? Is he saying, hey, you want to be in the stars? You want your name in lights? Or is it... No, is they it... just... It's, so I was very heavily involved in... Um, I spent five years live, living in America and I was very heavily involved in the recruiting process out there. And it is like that. It is basically a celebration of you um, and just letting you know, you know, the targets that you, you, you would need to hit to make these championships. And obviously you're very close to them. So they're letting you know, like... Hey, if you would, you're training twice a week, if you were training six times a week, imagine, you know, what your time would convert to. We can get you this sponsorship deal. You know, for me, my first contract was with Adidas. I didn't even think about, you know, getting free anything. Um, and yeah, just introducing you to what it takes to be a pro athlete. But a lot of it is focused on what the athlete needs to do. So you kind of go into it thinking, gosh, you know, very grateful and, you know, okay, as long as I hit this and there's so much pressure from the get go. Um, so it, it can be quite daunting, especially if you're tackling that on your own um, and without sort of anyone that's really got your interests um, at heart, because what you don't see is the percentages they're counting as well. <laughs> um, and which I realized very late in my journey. So that's why I'm very adamant about protecting athletes rights and athletes welfare, because I feel like, you know, my journey could have been a lot handled so much better than it was. Uh, but in the beginning, it's, it is exciting for, you know, little old me from Stonebridge Park who, you know, just started running on lacrosse pitches at school. Um, it was amazing. But for me, what it really translated to was one, showing my mom that I could make it and also supporting my family. Um, so, you know, that is it for me. It was my job at that point. <laughs> and, and how does that because we was this when you were tra transitioning out of university or was there a crossover between you studying and actually turning pro so it was my final year i had um my exams to take and a dissertation so what i decided with my tutor was i would take all my exams before going to the commonwealth games they let me sit some of them early and then i would defer my dissertation to the following year so I did that remotely um, from London um, in hindsight I probably should have stayed in Bath but I was eager to get my pro career going so um, so that's what happened and then I transitioned over to East London side Lee Valley was just opening then um, obviously and, and are, you offered, are you offered a contract then with a set salary by by the agent or is there an expectation on, on how because as soon as you're out of uni, you've then got to self-support. So what, is there just one salary package that you're offered or do they do you go into that with all these different expectations of what's achievable? Yeah, so I think there is a lot of pressure. And this is why I feel like not many athletes experience um, this side of it, because they're looking for Olympic medalists from a very early age. They don't really mm. look at hey, we can nurture and develop and talent. They want the talent kind of already on a plate, mm. you know, and essentially I was so close to, you know, translating my times to a finals and semis. It was very easy at that age. And they thought, okay, wow, she's so young. This is almost a set, sure thing. So you, you'd get a contract whereby it's percentages. So they're going to negotiate a contract with you for Adidas and they're going to take 20% from then on. You know, that's a pretty standard um, contract you get offered however not many athletes will be offered that at that age what you mm. tend to see is a lot of kit contracts and just ample kit thrown at you until you produce something where they think okay 
let's invest in you. But that doesn't necessarily give you enough guarantee to go at it full time. And you still got to, um, you know, you still pay your bills. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, you know, you when can't you say when you say, um, you know, you're on a kit contract until until you do something that that allows them to to put you on something better or, or, or to get yeah. what does, does that is that always results is that always um or, or, is, or is that other stuff or, or, uh, is yeah so that? yeah the, you know contracts vary from from athlete to athlete but generally there'll be bonus there'll be a bonus structure so if you win nationals you might be given a certain amount say i don't know mm. two and a half grand um, if you break a national record, you might be given 5K. So depending on, you know, where you finish at the end of the year as well, they'll review that contract um, and then decide whether to put you on a retainer. Um, and then, but by then you'll be getting a, a certain amount for the year. Um, and so kick, so kick contracts are basically just get, being given clothes mm. um, and you, you have to wear those shoes and things like that. So they look at your relationship with the brand as well whether you can be used on any marketing campaigns um, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's up to, you know, if you have, so your parents in your corner or someone else that can advocate for you, you can push for more. I think people just get a bit, you know, a bit humble, a bit scared to say, actually, this is what I'm worth. This is what I believe in. This is where I'm going to get to. Um, so, yeah, and I'm just desperate to sort of see this kind of agent athlete management done well in in a sport like track and field this isn't football this isn't rugby this isn't cricket it's track and field and so they have to be realistic and i think sometimes they're really not and a lot of athletes are paying the price what the, the thing you're talking about there in terms of you know whether they can use your marketing and, uh, and and having that aspect to it has has that changed a great deal i mean does it benefit if you are a personality you may maybe you know you don't, don't haven't necessarily got the results but you're starting to show yourself as being very different or you know on social or you know in the way that you portray yourself i can th i can think to a few athletes who they didn't necessarily like get results but they they always seem to be followed in the anticipation that they would and they always seem to have a personality about them it, it, is is that something else that's taken into account a thousand percent. Yeah. You know, essentially they want you to be now the term influencer, you know, so if you have got something about you, they want to see it. And, you know, that will definitely put you ahead of someone who's, you know, probably a little bit more talented and isn't really going to say much about the brand or isn't really going to turn heads. So especially with the power of social media, I'd say in my day, not so much. It was a very heavily, you know, performance driven Um but definitely now today, they want to know, hey, how are you going to get people to buy our shoes through <laughs> mm. your socials? And, and you mentioned your frustration with the, the system of, of how agents worked then. Um, what, what, what's the problem with what happened at that stage? Because um, like, what would you want to change about it in, in how it's represented or how that relationship actually happens? I think just a bit more safeguarding and um, sort of athlete centered kind of decision making um, and less pressurizing and a bit more transparency, I think, in the whole on the whole. Um, I think with me as well, it was a case of I was going to be put on funding a lot of in the UK. You know, I think very early the goal is to get your GB best and to get on funding. But actually, people need to understand what funding really means. 
and the governing body, you know, it is a business as well. And so that criteria is set that high for a reason. And once you do get on it, there's going to be um, certain requirements of you that you you might then question, you know, that might go against your values or might not be suited to you. So what I mean by that, for me, being a 400, 800 runner, there were a lot of decisions Mm. that were made for me. And then, you know, if I didn't comply, oh, but you might lose your funding. And so it then becomes that dangled carrot. And so actually, when I was in my prime, it might have been better for me to have a setup, say, of someone like a Jess Ennis and actually Mm. realize that I was my own brand and get private sponsorship. So I wasn't necessarily held at that noose, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And, you, sorry, I just wanted to go the thing. You talked about safeguarding there. What what exactly do you do you mean by that? Just so just so that we're clear. Just I think you know when agents are approaching young athletes, there's no real um, protocol, or you know, no, everyone mm. just kind of just go up to you at a race. You mm. know, I think that can be very dangerous, and obviously with the culture of coaching and you know abuse that's happening in sport it's it's there's no one really there's no checks and balances with Mm. coaching and agents approaching athletes young athletes and athletes are vulnerable because you're essentially you're just chasing your dream and you want to do well and you're almost at a point where you're just going to do anything for it so you need Mm. to have that person that's actually going to have your interests at heart and also you need to have these people being properly sort of documented who they are what they're doing and traceable um because unfortunately there is a lot of um you know there's a lot of bad happening to athletes and it's it's it could have been avoided but do do uk athletics get involved in any way with athletes then um and their financial setup but also um in any way before they then qualify for team gb so here's the you know the thing that the thing that I would love to see change. I feel like it's very much the funded athletes and the rest, you know, and there is mm. this big sort of elitism almost and you know you notice it with how people speak. So I've done a few focus groups with uh, Brand New Sport and you know there are athletes who very early realize I need to support myself and I feel like they've always kind of been teetering between because I'm not funded Mm. I'm not elite, but their times, you know, might have been elite and the competition might have just been so much that you didn't make that team that year. You finished fourth or you've made an indoor team, but they don't deem themselves as elite. And for me, that's complete nonsense. Like you've dedicated your whole life. You were training and, and working, you know, simultaneously. That is elite. The mindset is elite. Um, and I just feel like there is this big drop off once you get kicked off funding or however your funding ends and then there's no more relationship. And I think that's really sad. Um, and, and that definitely causes a bit of a mistrust because suddenly you feel, I certainly felt this way. Like I've dedicated the last 12 years and nobody cares yeah. until I get a retrospective medal. And then, Oh my gosh, they remember me again. And therefore, okay, I'm only valuable because of the medals I bring. And I think that's a really unhealthy culture to have because you know, let's go back to 10 years old. I was dreaming of going to the Olympics to represent my country. And then you have that bubble burst. And I just think that's that's quite traumatic, actually, and what it does to you mentally as an athlete when you're already in a difficult space of trying to figure out where am I going to go next? Am I going to retire? You know, you don't need that. You want to feel supported by um, your governing body. And, you know, you've dedicated your life to this sport. 
Um, I don't think that's the way it should end. Mm. I think particularly after the last Olympics where we seem to be incredibly good at getting fourth, yeah. which um, actually is is incredible when you think about the competition. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, medals don't go one to ten and, and the weighting is just those three. Um, yeah. So that is their focus. Is uh, uh, Being devil's advocate, they'd say that probably there's not enough funding to be able to to, to increase the number of athletes they're funding properly. Did, is, is that the case, do you think, or do you think money's being put to the wrong places? I feel like money is, is misspent, absolutely. I think um, when they're bringing in these big foreign coaches, that's a huge chunk of the budget. Um, the people making decisions, you know, they're not necessarily that invested in the in our talent. So, you know, there are there's you know big governance questions to be honest. Um, and I definitely think that money can be invested and shuffled around differently. There is definitely money, you know, in in athletics. It's just not filtering down far enough to the athletes. And I think the program can be extended beyond the 35 or whatever it funds at the moment. If that. And how who's in a position to change that? Then it, does that does that have to come down from from above, or is is that something that has to come from below? How how exactly do you think that changes? So I think you know when we're seeing increasingly the athlete voice being amplified, and you know I know the British Athletes Commission are amazing at you know understanding that we need to hear more from athletes. Um, also the UK Athletics Commission. Um, but, you know, at the minute, everything is trickling from the top down and, you know, that's fine. But a lot of the time they're not able to put themselves in our shoes. So one thing that's being tackled is we're seeing a lot more athletes taking up um, those boardroom roles, which is super important to have mm. you there, um, have you part of selection, have you part of, you know, being a trustee in different sort of instances where it'll determine where funding is going and they can hear you know why we need this funding and how it's going to be spent um so there's still so much work to be done i do feel like the, it is starting to change um but this is the kind of thing that i want to get shifted with the, the crisis fund and hopefully um you know people like british athletics will turn around and say hey marilyn why why did you need this in the first place you know that's the kind of thing that it's going to take to sort of advocate a change and, and you, you mentioned how they spend a lot on big coaches, bringing them into the team. How do they work on an individual level level with the athletes, given that you've already had your own coaching up until that point? Yeah. So I do feel like it is a shift at the minute. We've just seen some huge appointments with Joanna Coates and also um, Christian Malcolm. Um, but prior to that, so I can really only speak of my era. I feel like it was very, um, you know, we're in our little silos. You've got our coaches and that's your your little trust, circle mm. of trust. And then you have your performance director who you need to answer to um, and the head coach. And so my experience of that was not particularly very healthy. I don't think I feel like I had someone who was very much an outsider, didn't take the time to get to know who I was or the athlete I was. Um, and just demanded and dictated things according to what was on a piece of paper um, and made some decisions that often didn't make sense for me. And then when challenged, um, 
didn't like it and ultimately I'm penalized. And I think that's mm. a really poor example of leadership and, and, and basically being a head coach. I think it needs to be a lot more of a collaboration and, you know, giving me some autonomy, especially, you know, at 28, I do know my body better than anybody else. And so I don't care if, um, you know, they're saying this is the best physio. If I know that I have a physio that I want to work with, that's who I'm going to work with, especially ahead of, you know, a big championship. But those kind of decisions, you know, you're scared to make because, oh, they might take my funding away. <laughs> um, so it's things like that. It does, you know, ultimately the head coach, the performance director, they set the precedence for the culture. Um, and I think there was a huge culture of mistrust, you know, and in, in especially in my second four-year cycle, mm. um, and it just meant that people were a lot less open and not really wanting to share. And we're finding people going off in their own camps. Um, and that's kind of a contrast to my build up to Beijing, where I felt like it was a lot more of a team. You know, the thing is with athletics, you are from all over the country mm. and you are, you know, there's so many different disciplines and you do feel like you just individual for such a long time until you come together to make the Great Britain team. And, you know, we'd go on camps together. And for me, being someone that fell between sprints and endurance, it was always nice dipping between the two. However, the second cycle, it was very much being forced to just go with the endurance athletes. And that was that, which, you know, should, should never really happen. And, and what other, from not just in your own circumstance, but from the other people in the team, what type of conflicts would you say were becoming typical between the coaches, between UK athletics and and the athletes that you think were needless and also destructive? Um, I think something that I've sort of been vocal about was just not really knowing the athletes. So just making these demands. And so things that I would see were, you know, body image and com body confidence being completely shattered because this coach has seen you walk through, you know, the, the camp and thought you're overweight. And rather than having a private discussion with you and your team, just sort of saying, okay, nutritionist, go and work with that athlete. And I think that's a really insensitive way to deal with that. Yeah. Um, also selections and non-selections were handled really poorly um, I feel like a lot of dreams were crushed because ultimately you think, okay, this is a selection criteria. First, you pass the post, get the qualifying time, boom, I'm booking my ticket. And then you find there's this discretionary third place and, you know, hang on, two people have got in front of me. And we're just seeing some real kind of arrogant decisions being made. And then you'd appeal it and you're appealing it with the same people that didn't pick you in the first place. So how is that fair? So yeah, there's just a bit of bureaucracy, which completely after 2012 just shattered my world and actually showed me <laughs> what real elite sport was about. And, and talking about body image, um, I mean, we've we've heard obviously cases where um, females in particular have, have suffered from this. Do, do you think in the case of UK athletics, it's been because of a a slightly toxic male um, perspective on on what a female form should be, or or is it is it deeper than that? 
I think that is, you know, the first thing we should look at. Absolutely. You know, we're always I'm a huge advocate for women in sport and women coaches. Um, for so long, I didn't want to be a coach. Like people say, you've been an awesome coach. You know, we don't have many 400, 800 runners. And I was mm. petrified because of my experience of coaching. And I thought, OK, I need to deal with that. And also I do love to mentor. And I do love to give back. Um, but why do I feel like this? Because if I'm feeling like this, a lot of other women must be feeling like this. Um, and, you know, I would have loved to have had or been able to see, you know, another female coach sort of holding her own. Um, and we're starting to see that now. And we've just recently had the launch of the, the um, Women Coaching Leadership Program, which was launched by British Athletics. But, um, yeah, it was just so male dominated. And even coaching the 800 meters, I felt like I was basically being coached like a man. Um, which you can imagine takes a massive toll on the female form. And also I was already um, just, you know, kind of a bit of an anomaly in terms of sports science. And we're already navigating how do we kind of get the endurance and the sprint training mm. to kind of, you know, meet in harmony without getting too many injuries, without undertraining, without overtraining. Um, but essentially a lot of the times, I was just basically being given what the coach had been given. So I didn't, you know, I do think I had a great introduction to it in terms of my very first coach, but he was predominantly a cross-country coach. And so laid off a bit of the sprint stuff. That was my natural element. But then my first pro coach, AO, he was pretty good. I had a fantastic training group. And I think because of that, I got to dip in between all the different disciplines um, and we kept that variety. But then when I went to America, I was being trained um, by a four-time Olympian, an 800-meter runner himself. And it was just hell because it was the most mileage I've ever done. And also he was literally, literally, I'd run a session. And he'd be like, well, I did it this way. And I'm like, you're six foot four and a male. And I'm <laughs> so. that's, that's really interesting, though, because the, the other athlete who we've had on, that really struggled with the decisions around UKA training was Andrew Steele. Yeah. And weirdly, it sounds like you two are a reverse in that he was a 400 meter runner who should have been training more on his endurance rather than the power because he wasn't naturally suited. And yet you're an 800 meter runner who should have been training more for the power and the speed than the, so um, it, it sounds as if it could also be that, you're you're both in the distance where it's the only distance that crosses over between sprinting and long distance and there's still two schools of thought and also a lack of understanding actually of of, of how training differs in that region absolutely you know andrew's still someone like, oh gosh i wish i could have trained with him because actually i think we could have um you know that's Quite often on camps, I would do a 600 meters 10 days out and one of the guys would, would pace me. And I just think, like you said, there's these two schools of thought and no one's dared to you know check out the gray area in the middle, um, which is really unfortunate. And I think I did yeah. look to America because I thought, OK, hey, I see a lot more kind of 400, 800 runners out there. But again, the mindset, it just depends on the philosophy of the coach that you find. Um, and, you know, that's what I do get a lot of people DM me and say, you know, oh, my coach is making me choose. You should never have to choose, you know, mm. maybe because of the versatility of, you know, my sporting background. I am just that kind of sprinter with lungs. <laughs> but um, essentially, there is such a thing, you know, as a combination athlete. And I did cross over those two 
two kind of systems. And I think, hey, it would have been better for someone to say, what makes Maz a great 800 runner, rather than saying, you know, that's not how you run the 800 and you're never going to do this. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean we've, we've shown that we, you can be terrible at short distances and long distances. So it's, it's clearly possible to be, to be both together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you'd think the reverse would be true. But um, <laughs> with your move to the States then, how does, how does a move like that come about? And is, is that something that is encouraged by UK athletics or seen as, um, a, a, as being too far away? So mine came out about as a knee-jerk reaction to getting kicked off funding. And I was like, I'm out of here. You guys don't support me. Always wanted to go to America anyway. Not the way to do it, but hey-ho. <laughs> we learn. Um, so we've got a lot. And, and going going back before then. So when you when you had that conversation about losing funding, that what what was actually said, and and how did that affect you? Oh, you suppose there was a conversation about it. Don't wow. be silly. I got a letter through the post um, which says you're no longer on the you know performance pathway. We no longer consider you a medal contender. Goodbye. You are the weakest link. Oh, wow. <laughs> I added that last bit. Um, and, yeah. And which performance was it that, that, in their eyes, determined that? So it was the fact that I was not um, in the final of the 800 metres of 2012, which it couldn't okay. be because I wasn't selected for it because of the politics. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, that was a huge trauma for me that, you know, has actually been sort of defined the last seven years of my life mm. um you know i had a bad trials in 2012 which ordinarily you'd think okay we have a bad race but that was probably the worst one to have the whole year so mm. in spite of having the qualifying time five six times in, in spite of running a national record in spite of being the only person with the qualifying time to be frank i had a really bad trials but then you know, uh, the performance coach wanted to teach me a lesson, apparently. So um, there were just lots of things that were handled really badly. Um, and, and, and weirdly, if you think about the British system compared to the American system, the my whole belief around the British system had been it's fairer because it isn't as clean cut as the American system, whereas if you don't win you don't go. Whereas in the UK, we supposedly had this more mature look at more than one way to go, which should suggest that actually you'd be more likely to be selected in the UK than you would in the States, given your performances. Yeah, no, um, there's nothing fairer than knowing before you turn up to a championship what you need to do and what mm. will happen if you do it and what happens if you don't. And, you know, first three past the post with the qualifying time, I think is absolutely fair. And when I see Olympic, you know, previous Olympic champions and world champions not making the team and still being able to hold their head high, you just know the competition on that day was fierce and it wasn't your day. Whereas when you're here and we've got this first two past the post with this discretionary place, there's always that, am I going to be the flavour of the year? Um, you know, there's always that grey area. And, yeah, I understand the precedent behind it, but it wasn't ever – it started to get ridiculous and people were starting to miss nationals. And I think that I take so much pride in turning up for the trials every year because, mm. you know, that's what you should centre your year around, you know. So if you, miss, 
if you missed it, there's a you might have an increased chance of going because you wouldn't have then that. I wouldn't necessarily as an increased chance, but I just felt mm. like certain athletes were starting to be a bit strategic about whether they turned up or not at trials. And I just don't mm. think that's fair on, you know, some people that's the highest level of competition they're going to get to secure mm. that time and potentially get on the plane. You know, it's different for an athlete that can go and travel all over Europe and have a, you know, have a season um, in terms of that. But a lot of people that were just on the domestic field, the trials was going to be their highest level of competition and they've turned out for it and spent money to be there. So I think the least that, you know, the elite athletes can do is turn up and fight for their place as well. <laughs> mm. And and so then with the with the move to America, was that something that someone approached you or did you look to cultivate that? No, it was literally me. I just felt like I'd always had this kind of fantasy about America. I didn't go out to um, college out there. I was very happy to be at Bath. I was approached whilst I, before going to Bath, but I just felt like I wanted to get a degree in the UK. Um, so I thought this was my chance to explore that avenue and be coached by a coach I felt ran similar to how I ran. And obviously, I've been going out for warm weather camps my whole career. Um, so I was quite familiar with California, which is where I started um, at UCLA and then ended up in Florida, which was great because it was a lot cheaper. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was literally sort of just, you know, asking around, did anyone think there was any suitable coaches? Um, and I think it was Tasha Danvers who, you know, got back to me and said, you know, what is it you really want to do? Because I did kind of think, oh, maybe I should just retire. And I thought, no, I'm not done yet. Um, and so she connected me with the coach I was working with. Um, and UCLA was great, but they weren't very um, welcoming to athletes that just wanted to train alongside the college kids. Um, mm. So then that summer when uh, my coach got a job at University of Florida, um, University of Central Florida, um, that was so good because it was just a women's only program and they're a lot more accommodating to our group um, training alongside the girls. So that worked really well. I ended up thinking, OK, well, how am I going to sustain this? Get a job. Um, and I ended up I volunteer coached for the first six months and then got my visa to be the director of operations for the team, which was amazing experience. Great insight to the, all the administration and, you know, setting up the, the, you know, all their competition schedules and itineraries, as well as being that kind of interesting go between between the student athletes and the coaches. Um, and obviously, because I was still competing, I think the girls felt a certain level of trust and, mm. you know, would bounce different ideas off of me. Um, and then I could then take that to the coaches on their behalf. So really insightful, but also I think just with the whole NCAA system, I noticed how much they invested into the athletes. And this was like a mutual understanding and commitment on both ends. The, um, you know, you're, you were a student and an athlete and both um, elements of you were going to be looked after and invested into. But you also had to hold, hold your end of the bargain and they were equally hard on you if you didn't get the grades that you were supposed to get that semester or you didn't compete and, you know, score points for the team, um, which I think was a beautiful introduction into what is expected of you at that elite level. And if you're planning to sort of aim for uh, an Olympics, you're getting that insight into the demands that I need required of you and that negotiation as well. And like I was saying with the recruitment process, it is like, oh, you know, a lot is especially coming to Orlando, you know, we would wine and dine these athletes. But then it was like, hey, 
that this is what we expect of you because this is the team culture and this is the standard. Um, and so everyone knew from the get go where they were at and then they have a chance to go away and decide whether it was for them or not. And do you get a sense of what the American because we, we've previously talked a little bit about the collegiate system out there, which for all sports seems to be so much better because I, I think probably because football over here doesn't need universities. And so there's no money in, in university sports over here. Um, but do you, get, do you get a sense from post-university what the system is like in America for athletes? and whether they've found a, a way of, of, of managing athletes' careers in a, that's better? I just think, you know, it is a bit, you know, the competition is so fierce and there's so many more athletes. So mm. you just have to be really good at navigating which school you go to, positioning yourself in the right program for you in, you know, 360 in terms of, you know, lifestyle, as well as what you're studying and that you sort of career pathway beyond sport, you start thinking about these things a lot earlier, I think, over there. And then there's the performance aspect. Um, and so if you're making it to the NCAAs finals, it's a big deal. And that's where all the agents are ready to pounce. Um, and a lot of the time we see world class performances at the NCAAs mm. and they often, you know, go on to do the USA trials and make the team. And so kids are coming out of college with huge contracts, you know, and I think something that is sort of happening over there as well, these contracts are not just one or two years, you know, we're seeing five years, 10 year contracts, which allows them to develop at a, you know, a realistic pace. Whereas I think some of the contracts kids are getting here, you know, you're already, you've done this major performance, which has, pricked ears and opened eyes but then they're expecting you to just in the next two years just have these you know gold medal performances which may not happen because sometimes kids just peak quite early and they need to catch up with themselves so I think the professional aspect that is you know they're a bit more ahead in in the states and that's what we see through that system and I guess the cliff edge isn't as steep um, mm. but also the kids have <laughs> five six years to get through college and realize whether they're going to make it or not whereas we don't really have that support at university level you rightly said so and that's a know. big difference 21 to 24 yeah exactly massive absolutely massive um and, and also you kind of see how your life is going to pan out a little bit more as well um whereas here I feel like we're just kind of <laughs> hoping so much longer and you know it's really hard to actually make that decisive decision okay i'm gonna go and be an elite athlete and do you, do you think the appetite is different from the public in america because i I'd, I'd say we were we're, we're we're quite excited about athletics as a country but then if i read things like runner's world i know more about a a 15 year old who's just broken katie toy's 5k record in an american uh, cross-country race than I do about anyone under the age of 21 in the UK because it's in runners' worlds. Yeah. 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 I mean, our we've got a lot of work to do in terms of publicizing athletics. Um, it's, it's sad because I feel like everyone remembers Sports Day. Everyone has an athletic story. Mm. However, we don't really have more than four or five household names. You know, and I think that has changed. Um, I think, you know, back in the 80s, I think there was a lot more household names. Uh, but that's because we're just putting, you know, one or two eggs in the basket and just 
hoping for gold medals all the time. Whereas mm-hmm. I think in the States, because they know how fierce the competition is, you know, they celebrate for right, you know, right from the get go. And I think it is a big deal to get a college scholarship. So they're starting so much earlier. Um, and actually track and field isn't that huge over there, but yet it is, you know, you can watch nationals pretty easily. You can watch, you know, all the meets at the local high schools and people just turn out for it because they're aware and they know where to go to get their athletics. Um, and unfortunately here, people don't really know. And I think if you look at someone like Linford Christie, if he had come through this system now, I mean, he, what, when did he first win gold? Age of 31? having come fourth the previous Olympics. Yeah. And so, you know, he that's a huge amount of time to be not being funded. Yeah. I think also what people aren't realising is that a lot of the guys that we hold on these big pedestals did medal, you know, in their late 20s. And, you know, Mm. for me, Kelly Holmes, the double gold was 34. And you're almost now, you know, at 25, you're too old. And I just don't understand where that's come from. And just the pressure that's heaped on 18 year olds to be going to championships for the first time, senior level uh, and coming back with a medal and being disappointed Mm. if they didn't make the final, you know. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of juniors skipping their age group championships. And I just I don't agree with that because that's just far too much pressure too soon. Um, And, you know, we know what comes with that once they get under the, the lights. It's, it can have devastating effects for a lot longer than that championship. And with, um, with your, your, your movement then to, to try and help athletes, tell us about that and, and what it is and how we can get involved. Yeah, so um, I basically wanted to focus on the sort of plus 22 era. I feel like, so for example, if I take myself, At this moment, I am literally living paycheck to paycheck. I'm working pretty much a full-time job um, in the charity sector, which I absolutely love. Um, But there's certain things that, you know, if I'm serious about going into the indoor season, it would be lovely to hop on a plane with the rest of, you know, the GB squad right now and head to Dubai. Can I do that realistically? No, because I can't afford it. So it would be nice to have somewhere where I could apply and say, you know, this is realistically what I'm preparing for. You know, can I get some support? towards that. Um, I feel like when I was younger, um, there were a lot of foundations, a lot of funds. And, you know, if you go on now, you can see and it's like, you know, only under 18s only. So I feel like there is a under, you know, a representation for the over 20, you know, that when you're leaving university um, kind of age and then extending into when, you know, life gets serious and you do have real responsibilities and huge bills um, to sort out. So you can't take can't say to your boss, oh, I need two weeks off and expect to be paid. So, so some sort of hardship funds and loss of earnings, but also, you know, crisis happens and it can be anything. Um, so I just feel like there needs to be some sort of alternative to um, having to sort of give up your dreams. And I'm just sick of money being <laughs> the barrier, mm. to, you know, at least giving yourself the opportunity and giving yourself the best chance to have that level playing field. And um, in in addition to donating it, are you is is the plan to try and pressure UK athletics and to try and pressure brands to because yeah. we've we've only really spoken to ASICs about their influencer program, for example. But they Holly was saying that she was finding it 
quite sad at times where she would have applications from athletes who would have received kit in the previous model and now aren't even receiving kit because there's someone with more followers. Um, is, is, is this something you're trying to actually change the whole system or is it just to, to raise money to help people they go from, from the public? Listen, I'd love to be able to influence and change the infrastructure. I just think with the big brands, you know, they sometimes are quite set in their ways. What is mm. disappointing is that there are a lot of um, current and former athletes that work in those p- positions of influence. Mm. And I feel like they should understand and should be changing uh, the atmosphere. So if that puts pressure on them, you know, that'd be great. I think what I would love to go into with the fund as well is, is essentially setting up sort of campaigns for individuals and saying, hey, we've got this athlete almost having kind of this body armor and saying this is what they need for this and this is what they've got coming up. And I would love for brands to come forward and say, you know, we'll support that. But, you know, I don't I don't see that changing. It is ultimately at the minute just sort of catering to what the athletes need um, in terms of financial support. But the because we we spoke to Rob Kohler, who used to be Epsi. Uh, sorry, Deputy Director General of WADA, and he's set up Global Athlete, which is now a, a movement to try and pressure sporting governing bodies in the Olympics to actually help athletes to stop you know, drug cheating, all these things. Um, I'll, I'll introduce you, but that, that's the type of thing I could see, actually, that organization yourself trying to, to bring the companies together, because yeah. why, why don't we have the equivalent of a kite mark the sports manufacturers where if they're not seen to they already have to show that they they have a good supply chain why can't they we can we enforce them to show that they're good citizens and they actually look after our athletes and actually look after our sport and, and that's a that's something you, you could see happening at some point in the future i think that would be so powerful because hey you know just take my scenario i've had three medals given back to me in retrospect and it's great that i've got those medals but you know, what are the stolen moments that go with that? That's loss of sponsorships. That's loss of, you know, moments on the podium. That's loss of marketing. So, you know, that is actually a really powerful way to sort of say, hey, because no one's actually knocking my door down and say, oh, actually, you're Olympic bronze medalist. And that would have equated to this back 10 mm. years ago. Um, and, you know, I'm not the only athlete that's been impacted in that way. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I would, you know, I would love to be able to put that pressure on. And, you know, what are they doing for the common good of athletics and athletes and runners everywhere and what sort of message will that send you know and and how do you see um how do you how do you how do you think your career would have gone if drug cheats had been caught at the time well i i, I believe i probably would have been a lot better off financially um but also i think what's even more powerful is just the confidence and not having to experience things like getting that letter i don't think that letter would have come through the post the way it did i don't think i would have been um doubted as much as i was you know in spite of i mean i think i had a pretty i don't ever expect anything to be handed to me it never has my whole life but to be the only person with the qualifying time to have a bad race and still not to be given the benefit of the doubt, you know, you'd rather have one person stand at a home games than, you know, we potentially could have had three in picking me um, because time-wise they could have taken two others. Um, and so, you know, if that wasn't personal, I don't know what was, but that never would have happened had I had the medals that, so 2008 and also 2011 was a 
crucial time for me in terms of contracts ending and just needing that boost to the next championship. So, um, yeah, there would have been exponential differences. And if you think, you know, we, if, if we have friends who date on Tinder, we think it's a little bit disrespectful to, to essentially dump someone by text. And that's essentially what UKA are doing to the athletes they've been working for for years. I love that analogy. <laughs> Only you, David, oh could, you, could you compare UK athletics to Tinder. What? <laughs> Listen, I got done by text. In fact, I've been too kind to UK athletics. I should have been knocking their door down. Um, yeah, no, I mean, come on. There is, there's a way to treat people. Um, and there's just things that, you know, they just don't think, they don't consider how the human element that we have. It's just mm. we're qualities and that's matter of fact and that's that. Um, and I, I, I think that needs to change because we're humans first. And, and ultimately, even if they, even if they still remain being terrible people, it's just not good business to, to be so horrible to people because it, firstly, it might force you out of the sport, but why are you going to be motivated? Why are you going to train as hard and, and actually say you do well next time? You're not going to be giving them the benefit, the doubt or the support that they may need at other times from you as an athlete. Absolutely. And, you know, with me, I just take my my role as a role model very seriously. And I love inspiring the next generation and, you know, just seeing that that spark that I had at that age and I don't want to go there selling dreams but I also don't want to be this bitter ranting athlete like oh, what's the point anyway so you know I want to encourage athletes to be robust emotionally resilient but also go after their dreams but also know that they're coming into a system that values them as well as their performance so you know I really am an advocate for changing the culture at the minute um, but you know I don't know if they're not good people I just think they're not thinking about the people that they're supposed to be serving. And, and would you say now, you know, this, this journey you've been through, do you have any regrets about staying in athletic? I mean, I should have played tennis, really. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, do you know, our track and fields, you know, it's a beautiful sport. It's saved running, saved my life. So no regrets. There are definitely things I could have done differently. And hey, that is the beauty of 2020 vision. <laughs> um, but for me, it's all about making sure that someone else doesn't make the same mistakes or fall down the same potholes, which is, mm. you know, why I have this heart for mentoring and, you know, kind of having a seat at the table when it comes to these decisions being made. And, um, you know, you mentioned about a seat at the table. That's one of the I mentioned Rob and his uh, global athlete movement. And, and, and that's one of their actual pressure points is actually we need to be seeing more athletes who aren't necessarily directly employed, but who represent in UK athletics, in Olympic uh, associations and world athletics. I mean, are there any other changes that you'd also like to see that you think would really help change this um, I think you touched on it. So I think um, in terms of me, I've been asked to sit on lots of boards and it was quite intimidating. But I've recently been um, accepted onto. it's sponsored by the PFA. <laughs> Football has all the money, but it is called the Effective Board Member Programme. And it's actually not as daunting 
you know, as I thought. And actually, the fact that my experiences will be taken on board and actually give a a snapshot of what several other people are feeling. I think that's a really powerful place to be. So I would just encourage a lot more athletes to see these roles coming up and not shy away from them because that's exactly what I did. But that's all part of what um, I want to do in terms of the work with transitioning athletes, like understanding that you can be holding these positions as you compete. You know, it's very powerful still Mm. being in the sport and actually saying this is what's happening to me now and this is how it impacts me this is the decisions you're making this is how it's impacting myself and the people i'm representing um so yeah definitely there needs to be a lot more athletes sort of looking at you know sharing their experiences and you know speaking up really and and what can we do as listeners is there anything that you'd say that we can do to help um our uk athletes and, and to help change the system i think You know, social media is everyone's go to. So, you know, when you do see an athlete reach out for support and you genuinely are in a position to, of course, by all means, get in touch. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, Marilyn Okoro, number four at gmail.com. But also it's um, networking. I think for athletes, networking is so powerful because you never know what's going to lead to what. Um, And so if you may not be in a position to help, you know, perhaps you know someone that can. And so it's just helping that athlete get connected and stay connected. But above all, it's just, you know, we just, you guys and fans are the reason why we choose to put ourselves through this grueling stuff because of, you know, that raw, literally what I live for is that raw when I come out into the stadium. Um, So yeah, just keep pressuring the governing bodies to be good people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Marilyn, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really, really (laughs) So you mentioned your Instagram page. Are there any other socials or any other things we can plug? So at the minute, I'm just sort of taking, um, it will be a wider crowdfunding um, platform for the Athlete Crisis Fund, but at the minute it's just looking at getting a level of interest in terms of private investors so that is my email Marilyn Okoro 4 at gmail.com um, as well as brands as well um, but my Twitter is Marilyn Okoro and my Instagram is the girl underscore Okoro so thank so you so much is, is that therefore a watch this space and at some point it will be open more to the public to you know, absolutely yeah it will be <laughs> I may as well th- congratulations on being such an incredible athlete but also just such a, a lovely person so Thanks for all you've done in the sport, but also thanks from all of us for what you're going to do. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for an awesome chat. Our pleasure. Thanks, Riley. Cheers. Ah. Oh. So interesting. I think we could have spent four hours. We didn't even talk about Really, the, the cheats, the jug cheats, given how much that impacted, you know, three medals. I mean, that's unbelievable, isn't it? There, there are so many parallels with Andrew Still. Like, it's really, really, mm. really interesting, actually, because as she was talking to that, I was thinking exactly the same thing um, in so many different ways. Um, but it's, it's really interesting to hear how that coaching approach mm. seems to be a... <laughs> it amazes me that the coaching approach seems to be very similar to some of the coaches in the US. You think, you know, uh, there'll be some element of sophistication, but it's like, uh, this is what I've done. This is how it's done. Uh, you fit in with this. And I and imagine that is really has been, it, if you're an athlete who ever 
like didn't fit into that you properly slip between the cracks like yeah through no fault of your own just through the that dogmatic application of how things are done and yeah and you just think the amount of athletes that, that you know could have really thrived had there been a little bit more flexibility in if in she'd have switched done. coaches with andrew Steele, they'd both have, you know <laughs> yeah those trajectories would be dramatically different for both of them yeah and and took out the Russians who were competing as well. Yeah, took out the drug yeah. cheats as well. <laughs> yeah, it would have been brilliant if it was that. Um, there's, there's one thing, talk about coaches, there's one thing I need to go back to, though, uh, to discuss with you. Um, and uh, it's the coach at your school. Um, you said the coaches at your school were, were very, very serious and everything. And it, it obviously, you know, very important. So so important to you, in fact, that you didn't do any running for what ten years, fifteen <laughs> years after leaving school. <laughs> well, what that's a good they point do to you, David. Well, running running wasn't really a a focus because the, I mean, my, when my when I was at prep school, my, my teacher was called Mister Lines, genuinely Mister Lines. And he gave out a huge number of lines he had to write when you were in trouble. Um, and it was interesting. that's interesting because our, our at primary school, um, the police liaison officer who used to come in and talk to us about drugs was <laughs> called PC Lines as well. <laughs> Did he make you do a huge number of lines as well? <laughs> exactly. He goes, the other side. This is bad. This is bad. Do not do, not do this amount of lines. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, we feared we feared that hit Mr. Lines massively. But um, at senior school, I think it's it's probably true of most most schools for different areas where the teacher pretty much determines what's important. And so we were a hockey school, and oh, really, yeah, 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 hockey was was far more important than rugby, um, mainly, which is was quite weird, I, I, given that the the teacher, Mr. Opie. He had before, he had been um, national level hockey, but then also Tim Reeman, who was our, our rugby coach, he had been um, he played understudy for a Bath number ten. So you know he was incredibly high level of rugby as well. But for some reason, it seemed that maybe it's because we were just terrible at rugby in our year. But, but hockey was <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, we're not we're not a rugby school guys. Then, uh, <laughs> why is that? Uh, no, just um, just oh, technical reasons. But I think as well with um, with rugby, it's in a smaller school. It's harder to be good at something like rugby than it is something like hockey, because rugby size matters, and therefore the more people you have in your school, the more chance you've got some massive dude who's got a beard at the age of twelve. Whereas <laughs> that's true, that's true. Absolutely. Whereas something like hockey, you can you can train people to be a higher skill level, but you can never train people to be bigger. No. So um, yeah, cross country was it wasn't really a sport when we were younger. It was it was something you maybe competed in side by side with running, and then it was is almost the sport that people who weren't good enough at the other sports did. It's and, amazing, isn't it? I, I, I do think it's amazing how the way that we think about sport in this country is so... I, and I don't know whether it's changed that much at all, really, but the way that cross-country was a punishment. Yeah. How many, how many great runners 
have we missed out on? Because they had the impression that they were so like cross country ruined it. Any type of running for them in the future because it was seen as a punishment and it was treated as such. Um, and compared with compared with the US and the way that they think about it, like they do genuinely venerate their all of their athletes. Mm. Yeah. Completely. Like, you know, if you go to a, like whatever, the, you know, even like a district in a state or whatever the regional terms are for them, you know, you'll people will loads of people will show up. They'll yeah. be well attended. It'll be well supported. It'll, you know, the facilities will be incredible. Um, and it's just it's just it's just not the same. Yeah, I, I think Americans like to venerate in general, don't they? Their presidents, their um, you know, everything. But the yeah, it, it's 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 going to be interesting to see how it does change because there is the, the the fact that she's already saying that she's being put on to, to boards is is great, and there was we we didn't even talk about race, but I'm sure you know being a black female, you're we we talked about the fact that it was male dominated. I'm pretty sure it's white male dominated as well. And we didn't even go into that and whether that has an impact on um, confidence, perception, understanding, cultural understanding, all those things. Um, it's, it's a strange situation, isn't it, where I, one of the things that um, that she mentioned there was the fact that her perception about coaches was so bad, she'd never considered becoming a coach. And that's exactly mm. the opposite of what you need to happen. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is going to be solved when more people become coaches to you know, to, 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 to counteract that. I mean, athletics and pretty much all sporting federations, it seems, particularly like Western world, seem to be old boys networks. I mean, mm. there's, no, there's no real doubt about it. They are old mm. boys networks that move at an incredibly slow pace to change, mm. you know, highly protected, highly political. Um, you know, and, and if, there are, if there are any examples that listeners have that, that you know that's different, that's actually a good model of, of, of the way something did, it'd be really interesting to work because I think you could absolutely learn from other, other sporting federations. But it just seems like the way the funding's done, the way that the coaching is done, the way things are chosen, the level of politics, the fact that there's people making decisions who, who aren't even part of the game. And by the time, you know, people are brought on who, who used to be, um, you know, used to be athletes, athletes they're so... Uh, jaded, institutionalized, and jaded yeah. that they actually don't 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 take the side of the athletes. I mean, the whole holding that whole thing. I mean, that is horrible. Holding that whole thing of if you if you don't use our physio and you try and go thing, you're going to lose your funding. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like like you say, could you imagine that approach in anywhere in the private sector or just just the, that approach at all? And the way yeah. that they treat them in terms of the way that they, it's just it's incredible. I think particularly as it's it doesn't make a huge amount of sense either because she's created her support base around where she lives, where she works. And so actually having someone, you know, for one, makes you a better physio because they know you, they know you physically, but also proximity is really important yeah. to be able to instantly go and see someone, get it checked out and be able to take lots of their time. I mean, that, that's, that just seems obvious. It's, it, the other thing aspect you made to it that you said that I think was absolutely true was around, you know, the, that whole, you know, being dumped by text. Because mm. what, what that gives the impression, it gives the impression, and I, again, I don't know enough about this to, to, to accurately comment, but the general impression I've got from, from, what, from the conversations that we have had is that 
it almost as though it's like you, it, it's almost like a one shot deal. Like, yeah, you're we're forgotten. Okay with, we're yeah. okay with you. And now, and, and as soon as you don't do it, you're out. And, you know, we kind of kind of be assholes to you. And we're going to make it very difficult for you to get back in, mainly because you realize that we're horrible people to deal with. Mm. And you, I just, you don't get, I mean, like, I know football's very, very different, but the way that, you know, especially now, the way that um, uh, football clubs have to be a bit more holistic in how they take the kids through the academy system. But when those kids get rejected and, you know, and they leave, they have another shot. They have another, I mean, it's, it's very difficult because you've got a club, it's very different because you've got a club system, but they have another shot. They're not so jaded by the system that they then think, okay, I'm going to work my way back into this. But this seems to absolutely kill confidence mm. and, and that's the opposite of what you want to do you don't you know you still want to nurture someone's dream like thinking back to that 10 year old you still want to say look you're out now but there is a way back and this and you know you'd want to put them on a different pathway rather than going you're out you're forgotten let's look to the next batch especially because it, it should be a, it should be a message of we're really sorry that we can't do this we we want to keep you one but we can't afford everyone it should be that rather than you're now worthless to us. <laughs> I know. I know. So it's bizarre. Just, it's just, that's just simple wording. I mean, like, who? Yeah. Yeah. It's just simple just... wording to make the difference between leaving someone shattered and, and, and fulfilling an administrative purpose. But it must be, it must be absolutely gutting to watch a major championships where you know you're the only person who's qualified. You're the only person who could win a medal and you're not there because of some twat. Yeah. Um, and then they're, and then they're on the appeal board when you appeal it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, it, it, it's like, it, it's like something from some weird cat. I'll say it's like from weird Kafkaesque novel. It's like it's from a Kafka novel, um, but it's just it, it's, it seems something that's so bizarre and archaic. It's a black comedy, isn't it? It is. It is the black comedy that is uh, UK athletics. Yeah. Um, well, Dubelas, what do you think? Is, it, is does this surprise you? What you've heard? Um, is it something you've always been aware of? And we mentioned with Marilyn afterwards about how it, it was a shame, actually, that both Jodie and I were both obsessed with athletics when we were younger, and yet we, we're so out of touch with the sport now, given that we're, <laughs> we've got a running podcast. <laughs> the only time we know anything about athletics is when we get athletes on to talk about athletics. Because you then bitch about it. That's <laughs> a bitch about it, yeah. But, but the thing is, every time you see athletes on TV, it's purely by accident because you've switched over and Columbo's on for the 900th time. And you're like, oh, I don't <laughs> want to watch that yet. Oh, wait a minute, athletics is on. How many of these people? And then you think, oh, how many of these people are on uh, are doping? And that's it. Yeah, and maybe we need to consciously, con consciously go out there and, and just all follow the next generation of British athletes on Instagram and make sure that they've got the, the public support um, it, for, for brands to be able to back them. Maybe that's the, the way to do it. It's weird. I'm like, what? Like, I mean, what is the point of UK athletics? I know I say, I say it's about England athletics, but what is, what is the point? Surely part of their remit and, Forgive me if this is wrong. Is to promote athletics to a wider public as well. Who, if that's not if that's not their responsibility, whose responsibility is that? Yeah, no, it certainly is, and I'm part of UKA, 
I've received their emails. I still don't know how I can get a ticket to watch. <laughs> Thanks to Bruno. I, I, I have no idea how I'd do that. There's never a... Well, they won't an, let Bruno. They won't let Bruno in. For, <laughs> for good reasons. For good reasons, <laughs> for good reason, yeah. There's no way, there's no way they're going to give him a ticket. <laughs> um, but, D-Baz, what do you think? You know, is it... I mean, it did, it did sound as if things were starting to change, which is good. Um, but you know, is, is this a surprise to you? Is it something that you can see changing? Let us know. Let us at badboyrunning.com. If you've liked this episode, we've had quite a few episodes that... Jody said before we recorded this outro that it, it actually was almost the, the centerpiece of quite a few other guests we've had. So we had Andrew Steele. It, it connects them. It connects them in a, in a really neat way. Yeah, and that's the thing. We had Andrew Steele, who similarly, 2012 was his Annis Horribilis in terms of UKA, and he was pushed into the wrong training, lost a second in a year in the 400 meters which is a huge amount of time i mean that that is a training error i mean that is, that is oh. unbelievable that was to do with he actually found out his dna was slightly different in that he was more focused should be more focused on endurance and his dna told him that we didn't know that at the time we spoke to Colin mccourt who also 2012 he uh, kind of walked away having turned his back on athletics and he according to some people i know was the the athlete of his generation in terms of his talent um but he turned away from it and put on huge amounts of weight and then two years ago took on a bet that he had to run a sub 15 um by losing all this weight or have to instead get 17 tattoos on his body um then rob we mentioned rob a few times didn't we? rob cola yeah he was deputy director of WADA. He spoke to us about drugs and how the system's set up and the the errors. We're also speaking to the Stepanovs, who are uh, Russian athletes that switched and and actually dished the dirt on on uh, on the Russian system. Some of the people that were quoted in court, and they're currently in America for obvious reasons. So we're going to be talking to them in a few weeks time about how they found uh, how they found the system and, and really to get the understanding of what it is like to be an athlete coming through a doping system because you're forced into it and um you know marilyn was talking about that injustice of having things forced upon you well imagine if you're a good person a moral person and you then find out you have to cheat and, and you how that find out you're Russian. You then <laughs> find no yeah. Way. There's no way you're not doping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. There were, were any others you can think of, JD? I just just those steal all ones, of them. Yeah, for you. yeah, those are the ones I think off the top of my head, which I, I, taken together gives you a really rounded picture of um, of the challenges that the athletes are facing. Um, and so I think they're quite good, quite quite good ones to listen to, to together uh, in order to sort of get that capsule of. Uh, a snapshot of um of the state of athletics right now and then if, if you wanted to, to understand a little bit more about the american system we spoke to will ryle who he was a, a, a high level college athlete and he speaks about how the collegiate system works um, but also if you want a really positive one david brown who is the paralympic 100 meter champion uh he's also blind he um his story is just really fulfilling because it it speaks to that that joy of watching sport as a kid and what it can represent and just wanting to be involved and then you know the the real the joy of of succeeding 
if you like this episode please do review it helps us get great guests like marilyn because it adds to our credibility from the external world and do subscribe if you want to join the conversation head over to the facebook group find bad boy running podcast and answer three questions and we will let you in we have a running club uh bad boy running club uh that uh we said that we wouldn't do, but we've ended up with one uh, mistakenly. And it, it, well, good thing is it's not full of runners. So that's, that's we've fulfilled uh, aim in that thing. If you're interested in joining a running club and you're not currently part of one, club.badboyrunning.com and there's more details on there. And we've even got a running coach who's not going to insist that you do the wrong training plan for yourself. <laughs> well, we don't know that. We don't, we don't know that. Maybe we will. Maybe will. You do the wrong training plan. <laughs> and uh, if you want to ask questions to our future guests, follow us on Instagram. We put in advance who we're going to be talking to. We've mentioned uh, a few of them already. And we'll then ask your questions directly to the person on the podcast. So thanks for listening, guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye 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 bye